We're in a series right now on miracles. We're in the big middle of it. And last time I spoke, uh, we talked about uh, kind of the attitude that we need to have in our hearts to to receive a miracle. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to think about because God does whatever he wants to do, and you can't, you can't earn a miracle or a breakthrough. You can't earn God's uh, love for you. He just loves you unconditionally. But there is, a, there is an attitude of the heart that, that needs to be the right conditions in order to uh, put us in the right situation to receive a, a miracle. Because if you're in a bad mood and if you're grumpy and angry, uh, the Holy Spirit's not going to want to hang out with you. I don't want to hang out with you when you're like that. So, so why would the Holy Spirit want to hang out with you? And if the Holy Spirit's not hanging out with you because you have a bad attitude or because you're just, you know, you're negative, you're griping or you're, you're complaining about other people, um, you're, you're going to lessen your chances to see a kingdom breakthrough in your life. So it, your, your chances are better. If, you have, if the condition of your heart is ripe and ready to receive a miracle. And the, 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 the attitude and the position that we, have, that we must take in order to receive a miracle is, uh, is almost this uh, tenacious, not giving up attitude. Like when we pray, when we petition God for our needs, it needs to be heartfelt in the sense that there, need to, there needs to be some emotion behind it. There needs to be uh, some passion in our prayers. They need to be moving us. Because if it's not moving us, why should it move God? You know, if we have a flippant attitude towards our prayer, if we're just, oh, I'm just going to toss up a prayer to Jesus and maybe he'll catch it. If that's the attitude in our prayer life, then, then why is he going to say, look, if you're not serious about your miracle or your breakthrough, then why should I be serious about your miracle or your breakthrough? If you're not willing to take a chance and and step out of faith, receive a miracle, then how can I possibly move in you? You're hindering me. And Jesus made this illustration. Jesus, the healer, was hindered from healing in in his own hometown because the people lacked faith. And they said, isn't that Jesus? So there was a cynical spirit that was on them too. Yet he goes into another town where everybody was selfless, where they were pursuing God in an active way, and everybody got healed. I, I, I heard reports of today somebody just got healed. Ankle, right? Where is it? Yeah. So God moves in powerful ways right here and right now. So there is, again, there needs to be this, this dogged pursuit of Jesus. And that's what we looked at last time I, I spoke, is that there was, there were, there's like a good pursuit of Jesus, and then there's a not-so-good pursuit of Jesus. Like when you are after the good things of God, when you understand his, his character, that he wants to reshape you, he wants to form you into his plan for your life, when, you're, when you identify with that truth, and when, you're, when you realize that it's not all about me, that is some fertile soil. That's where God can really start to move. But if you're pursuing Jesus, if you're tracking him down, if you're following him all over the place in order to get stuff from Jesus, like you want to be blessed, and you want toys, and you want money, and you want, and you want the healing all for yourself, but you're really not cared, you don't really care about the person sitting next to you whether they get healed or not. If that's the attitude of the heart, I don't know, maybe you, you might get some breakthrough, but what you've become is you've become 
a prosperity gospel Christian. Where you're in, you're, in, you're in it for the things that you can get out of the Father and not for the relationship that you have with the Father. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So we're going to be continuing this theme on how to position ourselves and our hearts in order to receive uh, not only just a, a miracle in our life, but actually to see, receive breakthrough in our life. And there's something that you know, trying to figure out how to get a miracle is difficult kind of hard to, to flesh out theologically. But what we can do with a lot of ease is we can show you the things that block God from moving. We can show you the things that hinders a miraculous outpouring in, in your life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So continuing in the theme, like specific things that block God from, from moving in your life and what to do about it. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're going to be looking at three scriptures, and the one we're going to read and the other two I'm just going to make up. Um, no, it's just the sake of time. So today we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6. And I'm going to read it out of the message paraphrase. So if you're new, welcome to Granite Creek. We'd like to get you to know you better. Fill up a little card. We'll send you things in the mail. And uh, if you have problems with the message, I'm, I'm sorry. But <laughs> so we'll move forward from there. Okay, but this is the message, Galatians chapter 6. And this is Paul, the Apostle Paul writing. He says, live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him. Save your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think that you are too good for that, you are badly deceived. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Do not be impressed with yourself. Do not compare yourself with others. Each of you should take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now you have been trained into the self-sufficiency of maturity that you enter into a generous common life with those who have, have trained you, sharing all good things that you have experienced. Do not be misled. No one makes a fool of God. And in what a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, is going to harvest a crop of weeds. All, he, all he'll have to show for his life is a life of weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's Spirit do the work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So, let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued in doing good. I'm going to read it again. Let us not allow ourselves to get fatigued in doing good. The NIV says, don't grow weary from doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up. You, you can't harvest the good crop in the, in the middle of planting. All the hard work takes place in the planting, right? 
And in the Christian life, breakthrough happens when you cross the finish line, when you don't give up. And call, God has called us to not give up when we are tired. And this is actually the, the, this area of, of being spent and, and of experiencing fatigue and experiencing burnout in, in our spiritual life, or even you know, physically and emotionally uh, keeps us from experiencing the breakthrough, receiving the miracle, having God actually move in our life. Because we're tired. Now, there's a secret to it. I mean, you can't get, a, get around not being tired. It's just going to happen. Uh, and actually, that is the, that's the model for the Christian life. The model for the Christian life is the Holy Spirit fills you up, burns you out, and then fills you up again. Welcome to the Christian faith. So, uh, that, that's, that's his desire for your life. He, when you, like today, when you, re, when you received, I don't know about you, but I received an empowering of the Holy Spirit, an impartation just from worship. I can have a better week now. Because I, I got filled up. But see, my responsibility and your responsibility after you've been filled up is that you need to give this away. You need to be able to say, I, you know what? I went to church, and I don't quite understand the emotions that I was feeling, but I knew God was doing something, and you're a complete stranger, and I want to talk to you about it. I want you to understand the joy of my salvation. And then you could give it away. We, we, we're not called to hoard. We're not, we're not called to have big, giant spiritual bank accounts. We're called to give it away. And so, uh, so how do we... The, the danger that, that, that we can face, that I have, I have fallen in, and I, you have fallen in, is that when we get tired... Um, God's not with us. When we're fatigued, spent, done. Have you ever said that? I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Most of the time when we have this attitude, God's not with us. And the whole, the, the whole spark for this message today, it came from the, the nativity, the last scene, the Charles Spurgeon sermon. Uh, preached in 1857, right? So this is, this is what got my wheels turning because um, our church, one of the unique things about Granite Creek is that we work hard. Just take a look at our parking lot. We, okay, probably 300 people call Granite Creek home. 300, 400, somewhere around there. Who knows? So they call, they call Granite Creek home. Over, uh, probably over 100, I don't know, what the, what's the exact number, Angela? How many people do we have helping out? Over 100, easy. And so the percentage of the people that call this place home and then actually rolled up their sleeves, put on a bathrobe, got a screw gun out, said these lines over and over and over again, froze to death, 
is huge. It's a big deal. Like, that's what makes Granite Creek so amazing, is that, is that uh, like, we're so in love with Jesus that, that we're willing to, to spend our time and our blood and our money to advance the kingdom of God. That's what makes us special. We work hard. But don't get all big-headed, right? Okay, just don't do that. I know we're great. I think you're the, the, I think you're the most amazing church in the world. I really do. But don't get all big-headed about it because uh, in that area of, of being spent, there's a danger. And, and the danger is, is, is a fall, is, is a lack of faith. And um, if you've done it, don't, feel, don't beat yourself up because Moses blew it too. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at Moses' story. But uh, I, want you, I want to read to you the, the spiritual truth behind uh, how to rest in God's presence. And, and this is, uh, again, this is from Spurgeon's message that, that I heard over 30 times a night. He says, it is God with us, Emmanuel. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knee in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? If that one word were taken away, God with us. Tis the sufferer's comfort, tis the balm of his woe, tis the alleviation of misery, tis the sleep which God gives to his beloved just the rest after exertion and toil. So what I'm asking you today to do is to invite God into your rest. Because we all have to rest. I mean, it's going to happen. You, you mean, physically, you just can't keep going. You're going to have to take a break. You're gonna have, you, it, it's going to happen. But when you do, invite God into your rest. It, we also call it Sabbath. So invite God into your rest. It's not to give you a break. It is to recreate you. It is to fill you up so that you continue to do good work. So that you will actually cross that line and receive that breakthrough Miracle even, maybe. That you will advance, but you will be different today than you were yesterday. See, we can rest and not have God with us. Do you know that? It's a, that's the danger, is resting without having God with us. And, I don't know, what does that look like? Uh, when you rest without being recreated by God, maybe you watch too much TV. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that entertainment's bad, but maybe... And this is our entertainment culture. We will rest with entertainment instead of resting with God with us. When we are tired and frustrated and fatigued, we make bad decisions. And we ought to be resting. How many people experienced grief this year? Like someone died. You lost a job where you actually had to go through the grieving process. Everybody goes through the grieving process when somebody dies. But there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. If you grieve without God with us, 
you are going to, you'll get bitter. You'll get angry. You're going to be angry at God because God took away somebody that you loved. Uh, if, you are, if you're grieving improperly because you lost that job, you're going to get angry at God because God took that job away from you. Or you, you, didn't, you, weren't, you, know, you didn't see it right. But if you're able to grieve with God with us, if you can say, okay, God, I'm going to let you into my grief. Yes, you will process the emotions the proper way. You will suffer properly in a healthy way. But you won't fall into bitterness and you won't demand control. So when God is not with us, we think that we can do it by ourselves and we say, okay, I will grieve on my own. Thank you very much. I don't need the bomb of my woe. God, I don't want you to be the bomb of my woe. I want you to be the butt of my whining. So this is what happens with Moses. This is, this is the, one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Numbers 20, and I'm not going to read it, so I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. Numbers 20, uh, they, they have to move. The, the, the Israelites, they're in the desert with Moses. They've left Egypt a long time ago. They're, they're trying to get into the promised land. But the, the whining and the griping and the complaining and the backstabbing and the bickering and the backbiting is keeping them from moving into the promised land, from moving into provision, from moving into a miracle. God can't work with those types of people, and so he's going he's gonna to wait them out until they all die. That's awesome, right? So this is what Moses have to, has to deal with, and they have to move from place to place. And so they, they're on this long journey, and they're, they're now under the land of Zen. And I don't know, it's like a, like a video game name, right? So they, 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 they take this long journey. So they're tired. They're exhausted from a long trip. They get to where they need to be. Miriam dies when they get there. Miriam is Moses' uh, sister, Moses and Aaron. It's their, it's, it's their sibling. She dies. So they begin to grieve. It's very, they were very close. They don't have any provisions. They've run out of grain. They've run out of figs. They, their, their livestock is dying off. They have no water. So now they don't have any provisions. So the money is not coming in right now. So it's like from grief to, to frustration to, to you know, really being without anything. And to make matters worse... They, the, the Israelites really start complaining and griping now. And they said, it's be- let's just go back to Egypt. It's better to be a slave than hang out with you two guys. And so Aaron and Moses, they both do what, uh, what, they, what they were used to doing, and, and it is the right thing to do. They go into the tent of meeting where they, where they meet with God. And they, they fall down, and they have, because they're praying in desperation. It's easy, it's easy to pray to God in desperation, right? And so they do this. So they, they meet God in their point of desperation. They call out to him, and God answers. The, the, it says that the presence of God fell on them. So they experienced the presence of God. Have you ever experienced the presence of God? It's available for you. You can get it. Maybe you got it today. Just because we experience the presence of God 
doesn't mean that it has changed us. The change is our responsibility. Moses and Aaron experienced the, the presence of God, yet they failed in the next step. So what happens? So Aaron, or God says to Moses, he says, what do you got in your hand? He says, take what's in your hand, the staff, right? He says, and, and what we're going to do, you're going to take that, that staff in your hand, and you're going to go to the rock, you're going to speak to the rock, and water is going to come out of the rock, and you're going to do this in front of the whole assembly so that everybody can see that I am God and that I provide and, and it's going to be for my glory. You got it? Moses and Aaron says, yeah, we got it. But their hearts were not quite right. Because um, this, this, this season of, of mourning and grief and disappointment and frustration, it, it actually festered into bitterness for both Aaron and Moses. And what happens? It's got some biblical name calling going on here. Moses calls the, the assembly of, he says, you guys are a bunch of rebels. So he eventually, he, his first response to the assembly is he's calling them names. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing or not, because as we will see as we continue, there's some more biblical name calling going on, completely justified. So I'm not saying that, that that's the problem, but that's his first response. He says, you guys are a bunch of rebels and you're driving me crazy. And Moses strikes the rock. And he hits the rock twice. Water pours out of it. And then he says, look what, we, look what Aaron and I have done for you, you ungrateful bunch of jerks. That's basically the attitude. Do you see the problem? Okay, what happened? This is, this is why he failed. And it's actually a big, it's a big flop here. Because God did not ask Moses to hit the rock. He said, take what's in your hand and you speak to that rock and it's going to produce water for my glory. And Moses, in his frustration of his situation, of his experience, so instead of doing what God told him to do, in his frustration, he hits the rock. Do, do you, do you, can, you, can you see his frustration? Like just visualize Moses being frustrated with people and grief. He's tired, he's spent, yet God's not with him and he, he strikes the rock in his anger and his frustration it still produces water and then he says look what look what Aaron and I did for you guys you bunch of losers that's what he does and God's response is you did not believe in me you did not trust me and you did not count me as holy in front of the assembly this display, this miracle was for my glory and not, your guy, not you guys. And you took credit for my miracle. And as a result, this is the tragedy. This is the sad part. I, I, I fully don't have my mind around it. Because as a result of your unfaithful act, you don't get to cross the finish line. You don't get to go into the promised land. You don't get the breakthrough that, that has been in your vision from day one. You don't get the miracle, Moses, because cause you struck the rock when I told you to speak life into it. You acted in anger, in frustration, when you should have rested in my presence and obeyed my word. You don't get to go. It's really sad. Aaron didn't get to go either. They, you want to know what happened to Aaron? 
They took him up on top of a mountain. They took his clothes off and left him there to die. <laughs> no. This is awful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> he thinks it's funny. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny, too. Okay, uh, anyway. He says, Moses, you, you can't go in. And you, do you know why you can't go in, Moses? It's because you quit. You, you quit when the, when the going's got tough. You quit doing good. You grew weary and you quit doing good. And therefore, you do not get to reap the harvest that was planted. That, that's a tough saying, isn't it? It's a very tough saying. Later on in the narrative... Um, you know, Moses is still in leadership quite a, you know, for quite a time after this. And um, the visual is that he's up on top of a mountain looking over into the promised land, and he sees it. And not only does he just see what's, what's there in front of him, he's able to, God gives him the vision to see all of Israel. And he, say, he asks one more time, can I go in? And God says, no, you can't, because you hindered me from performing a miracle in your life. It's really tragic. There's some other, um, other points that we can make, possibly theologically, is that there's, there was a rock that, that Moses struck when, again, he should have spoke to it. So why did Moses strike the rock? Why did he do it twice? Because that's what he was familiar with. Because this happened once before, where God spoke to Moses. People were complaining and griping and moaning and groaning about their situation again. And, um, and God spoke to Moses, and he says, I want you to take what's in your hand and strike the rock, and the water's going to come out. And Moses did it, and he was obedient. And so Moses is like, you know what? I don't need to rely on God. I can rely on, on this, this system that I learned. It worked once before, and all I've got to do, I've got to do it the same way again. I don't need to step out in faith because I've already experienced success in one area. And see, Jesus never healed somebody the same way twice. And so he went back to what he was familiar with. He went back to a, a, a method that he thought would work again. And he, and, he, and he struck the rock. When God says, I want, you to be, I want you to step out in faith and speak to the rock. And there's another interesting point here, too, is that the rock, as we know in the New Testament, the rock is Jesus. So there's, there's a... There's an analogy that, that I'd like to pull out of this. So the rock is Jesus. And we know that Jesus was struck for us. He was hit for, for our sins and our afflictions. So he was uh, the cross. The cross was, was for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be in right relationship with God. And, and so that was Moses' little taste of, of what Jesus was going to do. He was going to be struck. And we all have struck Jesus. Every time you sin, every time you, you act out in a selfish way, you, you're striking Jesus. It's the nails that, that hang him on the cross. It's the, the price that he paid for you to be in God's presence. He's interceding for us. It's that Moses went back to striking the rock. The gospel message the gospel-centered life is crucial. You can never forget about the work that was done on the cross, the atoning work for your life. 
a, a church should always be gospel-centered in that, um, that we always have a clear view of what the gospel message is and that it is preached so that we can call others into salvation, gently lead them to the reality of the cross. Sometimes we don't have breakthrough in our lives because we've been led to the cross, we've accepted the work that Jesus did, and then we've stopped there. We've stopped at the fact that I am a sinner saved by grace, that's my identity, and I'm here at the foot of the cross, and I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life. I had an incredible experience with this, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life. I'm going to keep on striking this rock because it felt good the first time. You know what's really frustrating to me? Is like how many times I have to lead somebody to the Lord. It happens with the youth group, and it happens at at big giant revival meetings. And it's like, I, I led you to the Lord last week. Why am I leading you back to the cross? Did you not get it the first time? And see, this is gonna again, don't misunderstand me. Gospel centered life is extremely important. You always have to be able to have like the cross ought to always move you. But the empowered life, see, the work of the cross is, is, is a work of grace. It's the, the, the salvation. It's grace. It's the saving grace, right? Do you understand that? That you were saved solely by grace. But there's a second work of grace, and that is an empowering work. And, and a lot of Christians don't live an empowered life because they're stuck at salvation grace when God wants them to move into empowering grace where instead of striking the rock, you're speaking life to a situation, where you're no longer a sinner saved by grace, but now you are a priest, and you're a king, and you're a queen in God's court, and you've taken on a new identity. You are co-heirs with Christ. This is the progression. That is spiritual maturity. To always have the idea of a gospel-centered life, yet empowered to do the things that Jesus did, because not only is he our Savior, but he is our brother. And we were called to do what he did. So way too often, we just go back to, you know, getting saved over and over and over again. When God is calling you to speak life into a situation. Does that make sense? All right. So that is where, that's where Moses failed. It was... Uh, it was a selfish attitude. It was, it's me and Aaron that's doing this for us. It was, uh, you know what, God? I'm not going to step out in faith, and I'm going to do things with the, what I'm used to. I have, I have a system, and it worked fine. I'm going to do that system again. I'm going to work the plan, and I'm not going to step out in faith. You know, this prayer model worked for the first time, and I'm going to do it again. But most importantly, Moses had to be in control. He wouldn't allow God to be in control. And that all stemmed from his inability to let God recreate him in his time of grief and fatigue. All right, let's take a look at somebody that did it right. Very short story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. And this is the life of our first martyr for the faith, Stephen. Now Stephen, okay, Stephen was appointed to basically be an apostle, but... The, the apostles were, I mean, things were happening. The church was growing 
at exponential rates. And the reason why it was growing so much is because the apostles were performing signs and wonders and miracles. People were being healed all over the place. Incredible things were happening. And the apostles, these, these 11 guys, plus that other guy that, that got lucky or whatever, never hear from him again, but these 11 guys were doing all the work. And they said, we need some help, so let's appoint some deacons. So they appointed seven other deacons to help take care of the poor because the apostles didn't want to wait on tables anymore. I think that's, what, that's how it comes across. Um, and the one that stood out, the one that is number one on the list is Stephen. And Acts chapter 6 says, Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and a man of wisdom. So he was highly regarded in this, in this area. So not only did they, they view him as having enough character to meet the needs of the poor, but he was, he was a man of wisdom, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we continue on in 6 and into 7, not only was he a man filled with the Holy Spirit, but he was also a worker of signs and wonders and miracles. And he began to talk a lot. He... That was his, that was being, he was being, he had these accusations against him that he was talking too much, that he was speaking too much. So let's read a quick, a quick part of it here. Okay, this is uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the, the members of the synagogue of the freemen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But here we go. But they could not stand up against the wisdom, the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit gave him as he spoke. As he what? As he spoke. So he was speaking wisdom, and he was speaking life into situations, and it was getting the attention of his enemies. All right. Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. What's the holy place? It's the temple. It's the, it's the institution. It's the cult of the, of the nation of Israel. It's their very own identity. And against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses has handed down. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, they looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel, a lot like Moses. Moses saw God face to face, and his light shined with God's glory. And, and Stephen had this same expression on his face. Then he goes into this very long sermon. I mean, it is, it's, it's ginormous. It's the longest, it's the longest passage in the book of Acts. And, St and this is, as far as we know, this is the only message that Stephen preached. I wonder what else he did that didn't get recorded. So he preaches this long message on the covenantal relationship between God's people and God. 
and how the law was, was instituted by Moses and Abraham and Joseph and, and how they all played their part and how it's impossible to be perfect and how they all have fallen short of being perfect and obeying the law to the T. And then he describes, he describes the, uh, the gospel of grace initially. He says all of these things happened so that we could un- so that Jesus would, would come in and show us grace, that he replaced the law. And he says, look, uh, I'm not bashing the temple, but we can't put God in a box because our scriptures say that the heavens are his tabernacle and the earth is his footstool. So let's not put God in a box, guys. There's more than one way that we can experience God. We can experience him in church, and we can experience him in our everyday life as well. He's not confined to the four walls of a building. They didn't like that. He says the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. They didn't like that either. Let's see what they says. In verse 51, some more biblical name-calling going on here. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, you, you, you bull-headed group of guys, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Your heart is calloused. You're, it's covered over. Your heart can't feel. You can't sense the Spirit. And your ears are covered over. Your ears are folded in on each other. You can't hear God's spoken word the life that's being brought to you. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The righteous one, kind of a unique word here for Jesus. He's pure. He is, he is the righteous, pure one. He is the only one that has followed all of the rules perfectly. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law and was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. The, San, the members of the Sanhedrin were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. Okay, so he's in a very tense situation. He knows that these guys are not happy with him. He, they, he knows what they can do. He, he has the understanding that they can and they want to kill him. Now, that's his problem. His problem is right there before him. Whenever I have a very tense situation, whenever my problem is right before me, and it's bad, you, do you know what I focus on? I focus on my problem. That, is, that, that dominates my mind. Now, this is not good, folks. It is not good to, to obsess about your problem, because your problem will take over. What does Stephen do? When he's faced with death itself, Stephen does this. Full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up and he saw the glory of God. So he figures out where, God's it, where God is in his situation. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I have seen heaven open. So in the midst of his problems, he, he sees heaven open up. That's available for us, too. So in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our grief, our frustration, our disappointments, our loss, you can find God in it. 
and you can see heaven opened up. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is important. It's unique because God, Jesus is always described as sitting next to God. The right hand of God. Sitting at the, ne- the right hand of God because Jesus is the judge. He's judging. But here, Stephen gets a glimpse of eternity that, that no one else gets. He get, this is his special gift. He actually witnesses Jesus standing in court on his behalf, interceding for him as his attorney, saying, Stephen's a great guy, God. Look what he's doing. Stephen got to see that. Amazing. And at this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at their feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is Paul. He's the guy that wrote Galatians that I read to you earlier. He, uh, he killed Stephen. If he was put into a court of law, we, we, we'd, we'd lock him away for murder. He, he said, yeah, do it. What you guys are doing is, is what we want to have happen. So he was representing the temple. He killed Stephen. Awful. So they laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. So, this is huge. Now, Mo- Moses had his moments where he interceded and he stood in the gap for people. Not at Mirabah. Not when he was striking rocks. He was frustrated with people. That's where he failed. Okay, so Stephen is able to do some name-calling. He calls them stiff- stiff-necked people. But as they are killing him, as he is suffering, he prays for them. They don't know what they do. Forgive them, Lord. He acts like Jesus. It's almost the same words that Jesus used. He's acting in an unselfish way. Okay, remind you, this is Stephen, the worker of signs and wonders. If you were a worker of signs and wonders and somebody in your life was on the line, wouldn't you be like, God, why don't you save me? Why, God? Why do I have to die? Because I know you broke those other guys out of jail, and, and I know that you raised that guy from the dead, and I know that, that you know, Jesus was able to squeeze through that crowd and no one hurt him at that moment, so why me? I'm a worker of miracles and signs and wonders. Why do I have to die? He doesn't do that, does he? Because it's not about him. It's about God's glory. You know what? The, okay, we can ask all kinds of reasons why God, you know, or why Stephen had to die, you know, to advance the kingdom outside of the walls of Jerusalem, maybe. But you want to know what's interesting? Okay, this long, giant sermon that, that, that Stephen preached, uh, it made it into the book. Who was there to record it? Chances are Luke was not there. Chances are the other apostles weren't there. When they saw him dying, they probably peaced out. They probably all ran in fear because they didn't want to die either. This is the first time that we had a martyr. You know who was there? Saul was. 
And what theologians believe is that Saul is the one that dictated Stephen's sermon to Luke. Because it's so detailed. It's so point by point. And here's the interesting thing about Stephen's sermon. It is an outline for Paul's uh, Pauline Epistles theology. So you could take Stephen's sermon, and it is basically an outline of everything that Paul has ever written. So, it seems like it was really bad news for Stephen, because he dies, right? But what did he do? The whole time that he was empowered by the Spirit, he was always speaking life into a situation. He wasn't hitting a rock with a stick in frustration. He was speaking life into the situation, even in the Sanhedrins. And even in his last breath, the last words coming out of his mouth, it literally changed the world. His sermon planted seed inside a young man's heart, inside of Paul's heart, Saul's heart, if you will. He he wasn't converted there. He got got converted when he got knocked off his horse on, on Damascus Road, right? We know that much. But it was, could you imagine? I mean, you, you were witnessing, and you, you actually executed this young man who had the face of an angel, who preached the message, and that word got stuck in your heart. And when you, when you hear a message, when you hear and receive truth, and it moves you in a powerful way, you're forced to do one of two things. Either you love it and embrace it, or you hate it and you fight it. And that was Paul's first response. He heard truth. He heard life. And he hated it, and he despised it, and he was out to kill it. But it was the seed that was planted in him. And it was the very cornerstone to the theology that changed the world. That's what Stephen did for us. Isn't that amazing? He suffered. Here's the unfortunate truth about the Christian faith. So, anyway, if you're, if you're seeking, uh, I'm sorry, this is, you, even if you're not seeking, you're not going to want to hear this. Because our culture, our American culture does not do suffering well. We, we think that suffering is, uh, you know, it's, it's a sign of weakness. But if you are called to, to go further into maturity, into spiritual maturity, if you, if you want to get beyond uh, the, the cross, and if you want to move into glory, from glory to glory, you're going to suffer, folks. Suffering is a part of the Christian faith. And if you're not suffering on some level, then it begs the question, are you doing it right? There's basically, there's only two faiths that... that, that understand suffering, that it's, it's a part of the human condition. Um, Buddhism is, is one of them. And, and Buddhism says, okay, suffering in the world exists, and I'm not bashing Buddhism on this. This is, this is their teaching, and this is, so I, I just, I actually commend them because they recognize that suffering exists. And so their whole thing is, okay, let's minimize suffering in our life. Let's, let's do whatever we got to do. Let's do karma points so that we suffer less. And that's their whole philosophy. It's not a bad one to live by. But the Christian faith, instead of trying to avoid suffering, to try to, to bypass suffering, uh, the Christian faith, as we see in the life of Stephen, confronts it head on and says, Jesus suffered for me. And if I am to be more like Jesus, then I'm going to have to be a suffering servant as well, whatever that may look like. 
So it doesn't try to do a work around this, this issue of human suffering. The Christian faith is the only one that actually embraces it and takes it on as part of its identity. And I've got to stop. We have the band of ushers come up to the front. All right, two major points that I just want to review real quick. Um, when you're tired, when you're grieving, when you're frustrated, when life seems unfair, um, have God with you in those situations. Grieve properly. Embrace suffering with, with the proper heart. Be completely transformed by it. Don't go back to this, doing the same way. Like, okay, God, I, I said this prayer, and I did it in this format, and God answered my prayer, so I'm going to do it the same way, and, if, and I expect God to do it, to heal me again, because I, I prayed the same formulatic, formulatic prayer. But God does whatever he wants to do. He doesn't gonna, he's not going to follow a pattern for you, because you like patterns. And the most important thing is that, that to increase in miracles, it's for God's glory. It's not for you. You're secondary. But God wants to do a miracle in your life to show the world His glory, first and foremost. Second, secondly, because He loves you. He wants to move mightily in your life. He wants to heal you. Let's just work on the conditions of our heart this season. This is the last uh, Sunday of the year, so this is your last time to, to sow back into the kingdom. And I want to encourage you just to give boldly. If you need to get caught up on your ties, now's the time to do it. And uh, we've had a great year, folks. We've had a blessed year. And I just want to encourage you just to give back boldly and, and uh, so we can continue this incredible work of proclaiming the gospel in our parking lot, in our auditorium, out on the street when we do outreach ministry at our food bank all over the world. Uh, Tanzania is next this year. We're going to build a center in Tanzania this year. So give boldly. God, thank you so much for empowering us this, this, this Christmas season. And I pray that you will take this church uh, into its next level of grace. I pray that we will always be gospel-centered. But God, I pray that we won't be striking that same rock over and over and over again because it worked once. God, I pray right now that we will that we will step out in faith and that we will speak life into the areas that, that we are struggling with, whether it's in relationships or whether it's in finances, whether it's in our own soul and our emotions. God, I pray that we will speak life into ourselves. God, I pray that we will see those that are sitting on the sides of us and are before us and around us. God, I pray that we will consider them, uh, uh, them better than us, that we will put others before ourselves this season. Grow us, God, in, into a, a self-sustaining spiritual maturity. That is our prayer this season. Bless this offering, God. Amen.